I watched, and this was maybe four or five months ago. Um, it, it kind of blew my mind because I've not been in that space much. I've had a few personal encounters and some people around me that have had spiritual encounters, but you can almost always put it down to um, a lack of consciousness or uh, sleepiness, stuff like that. So when I was watching the film, it was the first time that I actually looked at it through a scientific lens, and which is why I wanted to speak to you um, and to delve into your mind and experiences. Uh, is because for me, spirituality, or the spiritual side, sorry, not spirituality, the spirit side, parapsychology, doesn't connect with scientific research. But obviously, your most of your career has been bridging that gap. So how did did it start for you? Was there a personal encounter? No, I, I think in the generation before me, I think people were drawn to parapsychology because they'd had personal experiences, maybe in childhood, and they wanted to understand them. And maybe to a degree, their careers afterwards were a kind of uh, an attempt to make sense of their own experiences. But for me, I, I've always been drawn to science uh, and particularly the promise that science has to answer the big questions, the ones that are really important. You know, what are we as human beings? What is consciousness? Uh, and if you want to explore that properly, you need to wrestle with the biggest issues, not the kind of the trivia. So, of course, we, we have a good sense of how we might process visual information, but it tells us very little about our fundamental nature. And there were these little pockets of anomalous experiences that um, were a little bit inscrutable. They, they were really challenging, but they promised to tell us a lot more about that nature than maybe those other things. Um, and another side to that, I think what's really important is to get across this idea that absolutely parapsychology should be a marriage of two things. So one is that there are lots of people having spontaneous experiences that seem to be anomalous, that aren't readily explained with our current scientific worldview. But at the same time, the scientific method is still our best way of ensuring that we're not fooling ourselves, that we get something that's legitimate and valid. And, and parapsychology tries to bring those two things together. Take the experiences seriously, take the claims seriously, but then apply that incision that you get from the scientific method. The question I was going to ask were two parts. The first one was, it's interesting about your background, how you've not had um, exposure into this. So you're coming entirely from the scientific part and you're not biased in that sense. As you mentioned, some people might use the scientific method to prove to themselves that what they saw was correct. Uh, and the second part, parapsychology, I didn't know until I researched you. Um, what does parapsychology as a term cover? Okay, so if I answer the first part first, I think that's really important. I, I think there's often a myth around the nature of parapsychology the, this sense that people have a vested interest in a particular worldview or a belief system, and they're trying to use uh, research to endorse or confirm something they already believed in. But, but of course, true right. science is the opposite of that. It is absolutely true skepticism in the sense of suspending belief, looking at the evidence on its merits, and drawing conclusions based on that. Now, the frustrating thing, I think, for people who label themselves as skeptics is that those of us who've followed that approach actually have concluded there's something to this. You know, that under controlled conditions, there seems to be evidence for things like telepathy um, that meets the same kind of standards that we expect for other psychological phenomena. 
and that, that's where the irritation comes in uh, for those people, I think. Yeah. Um, to answer your other question, uh, if I were to define parapsychology, it would very much be in terms of um, understanding people's experiences, which uh, on the face of it and from their perspective seem to be contradicting basic principles of science. Okay, so these are really interesting. Firstly, because they're about experiences, there's absolutely no doubt that lots and lots of people only, but at some time or other, have experiences that they would label variously as psychic, paranormal, spiritual, anomalous. We can treat those terms as interchangeable a little bit, I think. Um, and also that the way they interpret them is not consistent with how they believe science describes the world. So science describes the world, for example, that consciousness is a product of brain activity, so that when the brain perishes, so do you, your personality, your memories, your hopes and desires. But there's these collections of, of phenomena, of different kinds of experiences, that seem to suggest that some aspect of personality can survive bodily death. Encounters with mediums, near-death experiences, apparitional experiences. And the important thing is that parapsychologists don't necessarily presume that those truly are evidence for survival, but they're open to the idea that these claims need to be studied scientifically. Because if they do seem to contradict some basic principle, then something ha has to give. Either the phenomena are not real and we can discover that, or the principle that we think holds doesn't hold and we need a new principle. So it's got to be kind of one thing or the other. That's the key to that. Yeah. And from my very beginner mindset, when I think of a psychic, I think of someone that could either look into the future or tell some about their uh, their past that they wouldn't have otherwise known. Um, but then I started to research a tiny bit more and there was um, some famous cases of remote viewing. And I think one of them was uh, during the Yorkshire Ripper times, uh, a lady named Nella Jones apparently helped find and track down the Yorkshire Ripper and his uh, 13 bodies. Um, phenomenal uh but then it also makes me think from maybe a skeptical rather than scientific mind why isn't there more of these sort of people there uh if you can guarantee that you could find or help find a missing person just from your abilities that's enough proof to uh get you onto a las vegas stage show <laughs> and start a career there but um what are some of the methods then for you and in, in your experience uh how would you test someone for me, I would have zero idea how even to go about it in controlling it. Sure. I, I just want to challenge the idea that just because something might be beneficial necessarily means that we should see it writ large uh, among the population. So, for example, we know that eyesight is a good idea, but we don't have the vision of a, a, an eagle or the night vision of a cat. You know, that's within the normal biological range for human beings, but we don't invest our resources in that as an aptitude. You know, our sense of smell doesn't compare at all to that of a dog even though we have a sense of smell. And in a similar way, if we think of a psychic ability as being equivalent, then we might ask the question, well, if it were somewhat impoverished, if it was a little bit inconsistent, could it still confer some kind of survival advantage? Well, in tribal times, you could absolutely see that even that inkling of a premonition about some kind of imminent disaster or some predator that's coming towards the village might just be enough for people to survive without you having 24-7 hyper-acute uh, psychic abilities. So yeah. I, I wouldn't necessarily think that this is something that we see greatly in lots of people. Um, 
Likewise, there are some um, app qualities which I think are really useful for communities like creativity. But when we see that invested in individuals, very often those people seem to be um, slightly maladapted for the societies in which they live. They become immersed in the research creation that, that, that they're producing and they forget to eat or they don't pick up the kids from school. So, so there's, there's a trade off very often. And so in shamanic cultures, we see those properties being invested in individuals whose deficits then are compensated for by other members of the tribe. Um, so there's that kind of sense that w with everything that might be positive, there may be also negative consequences as well, because you're less able to do other things. Now, in, in terms of how we explore claims, there are a couple of things that are really important. So the first one is to honor people's lived experience. You know, we're not in the business of debunking people who say, in my real life, this thing happened and I'm trying to make sense of it. We can never be in a position to say to people, this is what we think happened to you. This is how it is. And that's your explanation. Instead, all we can do is talk about other people that we know of and say, well, for other people in a similar situation, they found this to be a useful way of understanding it or that to be a useful way and leave it to the individual to make best sense of what's happened to them for themselves. And that's a really important role because uh, paranormal experiences can be distressing for people because they don't know how to make sense of them. They seem to be con contradicting the, the mainstream worldview and it's very difficult to find balanced and evidence-based information about them. So that's the best thing we can do is say, here's some information, but make of it what you will. Whatever makes sense or resonates for you is really important. At the same time, as researchers, we want to understand some of the principles of reality. You know, is there a phenomenon here that uh, bears scrutiny and how would you test it? Well, the key to that is to adopt a truly sceptical approach. And that is to say, OK, given how these things occur in the real world, what might be some plausible counter explanations? And then when we start to build a research experiment, we field against those. So we're building barriers so that those explanations are no longer possible. So let's give you an example. So maybe somebody comes to us and says, um, when I'm asleep and dreaming at night, I have premonitions and things later seem to come true that are in my dreams. Well, and for example, uh, there was a factory fire the other day. I dreamt about this factory being on fire. And then the very next morning that was on the news. Well, immediately we have to be quite creative in thinking, well, how can we explain away that association, that connection? Well, we might think, well, maybe, you know, this is an area where there are lots of fires and maybe the dream was quite vague or ambiguous and they've simply latched onto something which superficially looks to be a match. So what we need then are really detailed accounts of the dream before we know about the confirming event and a detailed description of the confirming event that's not contaminated by what we know about the dream. So we can get a better sense of whether they are tied up together. We might be less impressed by that experience if we learn that this is a fire and safety officer for that warehouse. And it may be even at an unconscious level, but so she has no awareness of this whatsoever. But during her rounds, she's noticed something subliminally about how things are laid out in the factory. And that's been kind of brooding with her. It's been on her mind. And the way that's played out is a kind of a what if. And her dream has been, well, if this thing happens, then suddenly we've got a fire in our hands and they have enacted that. They've dramatized it in their dreams. So we'd need to know about the antecedents to that situation. What information was available that could feed into what's going on? And sorry to cut you off here. One, one really interesting part is um, without training, I couldn't be as unbiased into these sort of things as you are. 
naturally I would say, well, you're just tired. You just, you know, you're dreaming everything. Uh, or one of the good ones um, that I debunked one of my own dreams recently was I dreamt that my grandfather, who was still alive, and my uncle who's still alive passed. And I was in the dream cooking something with them. I was on holiday. I woke up at, I think, 6 a.m. Text my mum, are these people okay? One hour later, yeah, they're fine. Uh, why, what's up? And then I explained. So in my mind, if I was to see someone else and they share their experience, I would say this might just be confirmation bias. Uh, the first time it's come right, you've remembered it. But the million times it's not come right, you forgot. So how can you, uh, as a researcher, stay impartial? Well, well, that's a crucial thing, because what we don't want to do is waste anybody's time. And we waste people's time, including our own, if we don't open up to the ways in which we might be fooling ourselves. So we can build greater confidence in our outcomes if we're sure that we've ruled out exactly those kinds of explanations. Now, in the real world, we can come up with some plausible mechanisms, but we don't know if they're true or not. They very well may be true. Absolutely in the way that you say that some of these experiences that are reported absolutely uh, rely on coincidence and kind of high base rates. There are 70 million people in the UK somewhere. Somebody's going to have a 70 million to one correspondence between a dream and something that later happens to them. You know, so we need to build that into the way we think about it. Confirmation bias. People tend to look for confirmations. They don't really look for refutations, for disconfirmations. And so those are things as researchers who are trained we absolutely need to look out for it and build into the, the situation. But of course, we can control for those things in an experiment because we have a complete data set. So we, we know, for example, what the baseline should be for people to be successful in our experiments. Chance coincidence would give this level of success. Are people outperforming that level of success? Um, we know that there might be antecedents that lead you. So you might be worried about your granddad because the last time you saw him, he was a little bit peaky. And so you're a little bit worried about how he was. And again, the way that's translated is into your dream. And of course it could have been sadly that he maybe had passed away because you'd noticed that. So we, we need in our experiments to rule out those, no, um, those antecedents, those common factors that you might've noticed by having some truly random process in place. So it trivializes the phenomenon a little bit, but for something like a dream premonition experiment, what you'd probably do is use as your target material, say video clips or art prints and postcards, something like that. And you'd have a computer randomly choose from a large array of these, maybe a hundred, maybe a thousand alternatives. And that would be nominated the target for this person in the experiment. They would go home and dream as normal, keep a dream diary, and then they would come into the lab the next day and share their dreams with no knowledge at all yet of what the target might be. And then the computer wouldn't just show them the target, but would show them some decoys as well. And so our tendency to see connection and links would be spread across all the alternatives. And very commonly we present people with four alternatives. So three decoys and the actual video clip that had been chosen for them to play through the night. Um, and what we find in those situations, then the baseline is very clear. If your dreams are just random dreams, you should only be able to pick out the target as your preferred choice one time in four, 25% of the time. But in formal right. published experiments, people are picking the target around about 34% of the time. So it's not an enormous difference, but statistically, you know, it's quite astronomical now because there've been so many trials. Some of the trials are astonishing. You know, in terms of the detail people give in their dream 
and then you get to the judging phase and you see these video clips appear on screen you're thinking well if it's not that one i'm going to eat my hat because that just fits with that and that fits with that that's astounding uh, a lot of the time it's quite a tough push and they might sometimes hit on the target but we can tell it's just a coincidence on some of those trials mm. wow and i guess the one of the key parts that i uh, i learned while watching the netflix book uh, film you were part of was that if it's not broadcast on social media and other media platforms doesn't mean it's not real um we always sometimes it will break through into the mainstream zeitgeist and there's a psychic or some other near-death experience that's been recorded and is a bit elusive the science and that's kind of the only time that we will see authority figures in the mainstream speak about this from my personal experience of course um but there's actually been quite a few famous cases of uh examples of parapsychology that would be categorically scientific proof am i right well science is a bit slippery this is part of our problem i think in, in the natural sciences it is possible to have what you might call a crucial experiment or a definitive experiment where you can truly test a hypothesis and it's either confirmed or it's refuted but in the social sciences that it tends not to work that way it tends to be an accumulation of a body of evidence over time so i can't really point to one single study to say this gives us the evidence that we're looking for and um, not least because our subject matter with respect to natural scientists our subject matter is more difficult it's more complex mm. because although sure. the physical world is incredibly complicated it's not sentient it doesn't come to your experiment with its own thoughts and expectations that can affect how they behave in that environment you know so when i'm conducting a study with uh, human beings 95 percent of the experiment takes place between their ears not in the instructions i give not in the setting it's what they think about what i've said how they interpret it and how that affects their behavior so it's an incredibly complicated nuanced dynamic now as a result that means even if there is a straightforward relationship you know obvious example women as a whole tend to uh, score higher on verbal reasoning tasks than men do but we're going to find lots and lots of exceptions lots and lots of men who score higher than the average woman lots and lots of women who score below the average man because it's just in the nature of the diversity that we see across people um, in these kind of situations so in the social sciences we tend to see statistical replication that if the phenomena are real then we'll tend to see over time like like i just said with the dream study we'll see that people are not scoring at 25 percent on average they're scoring at 34 percent but that will include some experiments where people are scoring at bang average they're only scoring at 25 percent our participants are maybe not especially sensitive maybe they had a headache on the day they came into the lab they didn't really pay much attention to it they weren't that interested um all sorts of reasons why things might not go well um but the cumulative evidence is what kind of persuades us that there's something going on you know you mentioned you mentioned remote viewing as an example so the database for remote viewing is quite interesting as well just in terms of under controlled conditions where there seems to be no normal way for people to have an inkling as to what the um, viewing location is or will be they still seem to be able to generate impressions that allow people to link it to the target and not to the decoys mm. wow well first of all thank you for clarifying that this helped my understanding quite a lot 
to make the distinction between the natural sciences and their concrete yes or no and the social sciences so appreciate that and the second part was um your history uh if we can go through your um professional history how did you start out in this field yeah, so my background is in the natural sciences. So um, I, I did A-levels to get to university and my A-levels were physics, chemistry and biology. My first degree is in biological sciences, um, although I specialised in psychology within that at the University of Edinburgh, where there was an interest in parapsychology. And I'd specifically gone there because I wanted to do parapsychology eventually. Um, and, and so my background is very much in the idea of experimental studies, quantitative studies, statistical analysis of those outcomes uh, and that's you know i think very characteristic of probably the first 15 years of my kind of research output afterwards lots of experiments uh, lots of quantitative data of the sort we've been talking about but over time i've become much more open to the idea that we also need to complement that with qualitative methods methods that are much more focused on meaning making and lived experience on the part of people who, who are living this life uh, not least those people who are in some way embedded or immersed in this. So people who identify as mediums, people who identify as healers, for example, so that we can have a better understanding of what the world is like from their perspective. Subjectively, what is the experience like to be a healer giving somebody else healing so that we can represent those people to practitioner communities, for example. If we're talking to psychiatrists and psychologists, we can give them a bit more of an insight into what it's like to be a medium, for example, uh, who are otherwise people who are presenting with odd experiences. You know, a medium says that they can see things other people can't see. They hear things other people around them don't hear. They have embodied experiences that they don't feel responsible for. Well, we have a, a diagnostic and statistical manual for mental health that identifies those things as symptoms of mental ill health. So you have to be really careful. You know, if you disclose these things to a GP or, God forbid, a psychiatrist, you could find yourself in trouble very quickly if you identify as a medium. And um, strangely, at the same time, these people we've found are psychologically extremely well. They're more well than other spiritualists. They're more well than norms for ordinary people, the general public. And so clearly there's something about how they make sense of their experiences and how they manage them, which means that they are not distressing to them and that they can find meaning in them and some value in them. So they, mediums very typically see themselves as being of service to a community. They're helping other people to cope with lo loss of loved ones. And so that there's a real sense of being rewarded, that that's a rewarding experience to be able to help other human beings. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You spoke on um, the, the mediums. There are different types of mediums. And again, to go back to the 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 film that started it all for me <laughs> the journey um it spoke about a few different mediums one of particular interest was the physical medium because and at least how i took it from the film because you can control so much as a researcher into that is that is that correct well it is and it isn't what, what one of the problems is being a scientist doesn't make you necessarily a good observer in most situations and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have skill with kind of um, magic kind of simulations. Uh, so if, if I were working in that kind of a study, we've, we don't really do that kind of work. But if I had that kind of an acclaimant and wanted to work with them, I would very much be bringing on board magicians to help us establish the circumstances, the controls that are needed. 
you know, I see. because of all, right. all the possibilities from kind of misdirection and so on. And, and this is really important to stress. This isn't because you necessarily go in assuming that everybody is fraudulent. That doesn't have to be the case, because the problem is if you work with somebody who is very earnest and genuine, they come along and they generate phenomena in your experiments, but you don't have the right controls in place. Then when you come to present it at conferences or report it in journal papers and things, nobody takes it seriously because it's so easily dismissed. Ah, well, you didn't have this check or this balance in place. So these plausible counter explanations are still available and people default to those. So you pretty much wasted everybody's time. So although it seems a bit odd on first meeting somebody, the onus is on us if we're going to be fair to them to say, we've got to make sure that everything is in place, you know, so that you're beyond suspicion. That if phenomena still occur in this experiment, they're not explainable so easily. Mm. Right. That also leaves the door open for a lot of bribery. A, a lot of what, sorry? Bribery. O of the scientists? Uh, yeah. Yeah, in my skeptic, uneducated mind, um, I would have, uh, if we take an example of psychic A wants to have um, authority in the field, so they bring a group of researchers, pay them behind the scenes, <laughs> and then... Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a reasonable suspicion. Uh, I'm, I'm chuckling partly because there's, there's no cachet in parapsychology whatsoever. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, I, I went to a kind of Russell Group University for my PhD. Uh, I, I could have, uh, if, I, if it was all about kind of material things, I could have had a, a much richer experience if I'd just stayed within a mainstream area. You know, so it's, it's much easier to get research grants, to, to be highly salaried and all that kind of stuff if I worked in another area. So the researchers in this discipline tend to sacrifice quite a lot uh, to be here. And it just seems... Quite quite funny to think about them then just taking a, a bit of a backhander <laughs> to, yeah. to give somebody the thumbs up. Um, I, I can't really. I'm sure I'm sure it happens. I mean, one one of the issues, you know, I'm very interested in fraud, for example, because that absolutely is part of what we're interested in. And and there are instances of fraud among researchers. I think it's more from a, a, a place of, you know, a deep investment of belief that phenomena are real, and maybe in an experiment they haven't happened, and so they've ended up. You know, as a last resort, doing something stupid. Um, but fraud in parapsychology is much less common than it is in uh, psychology generally, and certainly much less common than it is in medical sciences. And it's absolutely because the, the key features for um, academic fraud are not in place. So one is that there are uh, rewards to be had. If you are fraudulent and you're not caught, you know, it's, you get remunerated really well. That doesn't happen in parapsychology. Um, secondly, the chances of being caught by others are low. Well, parapsychology is a very small field and we are very highly scrutinized by other researchers. If people think something looks odd, th there's no kind of um, pussyfooting around. People just come out with it and say, I don't believe you. That stuff doesn't look real to me. Uh, there's been an instance really of that sort. Um, and then thirdly, how fraud is managed that very often in mainstream areas, if you're working for Johns Hopkins, Hopkins University in the States, at Yale or somewhere, they'll push you out the back door very discreetly. They'll get rid of you, but they don't want the reputation of the institution to suffer. So there's no great fanfare that we've discovered somebody perpetrating fraud. In parapsychology, there has been that great fanfare. When somebody's been discovered, 
there's been a great outcry about it so that everybody knows that this has happened. So for me, the features that you would expect to see to have a kind of a fruitful uh, bed for people to be fraudulent, we don't have any of those bits. Wow, that's very interesting. It makes um, your, uh, as a researcher, your claims more authentic. Well, but equally, again, it, the, the, I think to, to set this in context, I say sometimes to people, my job became a lot easier when I discovered I don't have to persuade anybody of anything. So, so it's not my job to say to you, telepathy is real. You know, mediums seem to have some real capacity to contact the deceased. That's not my job. My job is only to authentically and validly do the research that I do to the best of my ability. And when that research is finished, to report it accurately and completely, comprehensively. So not to hide anything away. This is really what happened. And this is everything that happened. It's up to everybody else to decide what they do with it. You can take it or leave it. That's not my job. And there's nothing I can do about that. So my job is only to be as, as authentic and as valid as possible. Right. And as unbiased uh, either way, what or against. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. So that was the first 15 years, say, in Edinburgh. What's some of, uh, what, what are some of um, the highlights of uh, your early introduction into this field there? Well, with the experimental work, I think one of the key discoveries in parapsychology is that there's something special about altered states of consciousness that seems to be psych inducive. So and again, we're talking about ordinary people, not people who identify as gifted or psychic or something. Sorry, you said people... um, psychic, uh, psyche induced uh, altered um, states. What is that? Yeah, yeah, so so psychoconducive. So there there are situations that seem to encourage psychic experiences more than other situations, and there, there seem to be situations in which you're in a mild altered state of consciousness. So that may be that you're taking psychedelics. It may be uh, that you've gone to Brazil and you've taken ayahuasca or something, but it may also be that you meditate regularly, and so through that you become practiced at shifting into a slightly different. Uh, aware but not your normal waking state of consciousness but it could equally be just that you're daydreaming kind of looking at an open fire or something you're falling asleep it's nighttime you're not quite asleep yet but you're getting there you may actually be asleep and dreaming and then the the dreams themselves might have content that turns out to be psi related esp related so that's a, a really important discovery in the real world we see that in people's spontaneous experiences and then when we bring that into the lab we find that that continues. If we use technologies that help people shift a little bit, uh, and I can say a little bit about that in a minute, there's a technique called the Gansfeld that we use as an example, but also the dream studies I mentioned before, we find that, yeah, those people who kind of surrender to the process, the ones who uh, experience the greatest shift, they seem to do better. They seem to have better outcomes than people who aren't really affected or shifted by it. And also we see some individual differences um, that seem to make psychological sense. So people who have a rich history of spontaneous experiences also do better when they come to the controlled situation of the lab. People who believe in psi phenomena tend to do better than people who don't believe in psi phenomena. So we do recruit people who are skeptical. You know, everybody's welcome. If this stuff is real, then, it, you know, that shouldn't matter. Come on in, you know, and, and give it a go. You have nothing to fear. Uh, and people who are believers do a little bit better in our experiments than disbelievers do. Hmm. And why would you? Sorry, why, why would uh, why would you think that is? Well, part of it we suspect is because it's a self fulfilling prophecy. 
Um, so, for example, the, there's a well-known effect. In the old days, people used to do ESP card guessing experiments. And so you, you might have seen it in like Ghostbusters and things. They were still using them. You have a square and a circle, a cross and a wavy line. So different symbols on cards. And people's task is to guess what the next card is going to be. And you work through a deck. Um, so if you have a deck of, of, say, 50 of those cards, there are five different symbols. So just by chance, you could you should guess 10 of those correctly. Yeah. Now, somebody who's a believer in ESP might get 13 or 14 correct out of 50. So it's not a blow your mind away kind of success, but it's a little bit better than chance. But a person who comes along and says ESP is nonsense, they might get six or seven out of 50 without realizing that that's just as difficult to do statistically to deviate from 10, the score you're supposed to get, as it is to score above 10. So we're grateful that, that many skeptics don't have a real good understanding of statistics. and They use their size to demonstrate that size is not real. There you are. I told you it was a lot of rubbish. I did so badly. I did even worse than chance without realizing that that's equally difficult to do. Um, and, and then other people who do well are extroverts, do better than introverts in our experiments. Uh, people who are creative, identify as creatives, do better than people who don't. And so, again, that relates, I think, mainly to the access people to have the unconscious reservoir of information that informs our conscious experience. So, so this isn't in a kind of mystical way. This is kind of mainstream psychology, the idea of perception without awareness, subliminal types of perception. So we process a lot of information that we don't have any awareness of, but it can still affect our behavior and our decision making. And creatives seem to have a more immediate access to that reservoir than do people who are not creative. Yeah, yeah. That would, in my my mind, that would make sense as well. Creatives being more in that, that, that frame. You mentioned, um, was it the Gansfield technique? Yeah. So, but so, so that's just a way that the problem for us in doing dream ESP research <coughs> is that we don't have a sleep lab. And not many people want to come in and sleep overnight at the lab just to produce one piece of data. So what we do have instead is a lab where we can get people comfortable and they can start to get into that kind of groggy, sleepy state, not quite awake, not quite asleep. And the Gansfeld technique puts eye shields over people's eyes and we get people to keep their eyes open and we shine a red light on their face. <coughs> and it's rather like uh, lying on a beach in the summer, the sun beating down, it's kind of warm and cozy. You feel safe and relaxed. So people kind of surrender to the process a bit. We put headphones on and play a white noise, which is like the kind of hiss between radio channels back in old, the old kind of uh, analog days. And it's on pattern, so it's just a hissing noise. So, so it activates your hearing system, but there's no uh, pattern in there. And people learn to habituate to that. So if you're in the Gansfeld for, say, 10 or 15 minutes, you'll start to have spontaneous visual imagery that you're responsible for. It's just your imagination but it's kind of projected outwards a little bit. So you might see uh, blinking eyes, or you might see basic geometric shapes, or you might see something a little bit more complicated over time. And it's just your imagination. It's what we call sensory hunger, because nothing's coming in visually, your brain gets bored and it creates its own entertainment. And likewise, with the white noise, you suddenly hear things embedded in the white noise, like snatches of environmental sounds, car traffic maybe or something, or music or people talking. And nothing's embedded in the white noise. It's just your imagination. And what we're interested to see is whether those perceptions, those sensations might actually be psi mediated. So psi is a kind of umbrella term for ESP. 
Uh, so it might then be the way in which we uh, get conscious awareness of cyclically mediated information. So if you suddenly, I don't know, so uh, you have a sound that's like a car accident, and then later on you're shown four video clips, and one of them involves a car accident, you think, well, that's got to be it, because I suddenly heard that from out of nowhere, unexpectedly. I think that's the cause of that experience. Wow. It kind of seems as you're talking that um, parapsychology or the psy is on the forefront between what we know and what we don't know. But is it at least how you're explaining it? It doesn't come across that if you discover something with advances in technology or scientific method, whatever, that you're not going to claim it as this is parapsychology. It, it almost seems like you're doing the hard work, and then other fields can say, "Oh, well, actually." This relates more to our field, but thanks for the hard work. Um, like that you said about the, the sensory hunger. That could be just as well something in a different field. Well, that, that would be the hope. Um, you know, I, I'd absolutely see what I do as being a branch of conventional psychology. You know, I, I am interested in other areas of psychology as well, but I'm particularly interested in this because it's relatively neglected. And I think it deserves our attention because it's important to ordinary people. Um, and, and, and the first job then is to apply what we know from psychology already to those experiences and see how far that gets us in providing people with a useful explanation. And if it's not enough and it seems not to be enough, then we need to go further. We need to do some original experiments and, and work it through a little bit further and, and add to those explanations. So when you're at Edinburgh, did you have any mentors? Yeah, so there was a significant figure at Edinburgh, uh, somebody called Professor Bob Morris, who came over from the States and established the Kirstler Parapsychology Unit uh, that still exists today. The, the professor there now is Caroline Watt. Sadly, Bob passed away quite a while ago now, maybe 20 years ago. Um, so that unit is still going strong. Um, and it was absolutely the focus was very much on establishing academic scientific credentials among people. If you're gonna work in a controversial area, an area that's not widely accepted, it is absolutely essential that you have the bona fides, that you're skilled in research methods, in analysis, in making sense of data, um, so that you you on a solid footing before things start to get too controversial. And from Edinburgh, what was your trajectory to now? Well, it, really boring. It's, that's going to be a short story. So I came here to the University of Northampton uh, after that. Um, and basically, my uh, objective was to establish a new research centre for parapsychology. So to attract people to me here at Northampton, uh, PhD students, then doctoral students, uh, academic colleagues, and start to build a critical mass um, of, of workers interested in this area. Now, what's really important about that is that it's an eclectic mix. So at the moment, we've probably got somewhere in the region of about 18 people involved with us at Northampton, um, a mixture of those people. So research assistants, PhD students, postdocs and uh, academic colleagues, um, wide variety of backgrounds and interests uh, and a wide variety of positions in relation to how persuaded they are for the claim for this or for that. And that's really important. You know, there is no kind of consensus group mind about things. We're all individuals and that means you get more of a thorough workout. So, you know, we'll have a group meeting and I'll say, well, I've just finished this experiment. Here are the results. What do you think? 
and they'll give you a good going over. Do you know what I mean? That they'll make sure that everything or every T is crossed and every I is dotted. Wow. That's very interesting. I would have thought being such a small cohort of people, you'd be banded together and almost confined within your certain uh, restrictions, but it's quite the opposite, it seems. Well, maybe it's a bit like being mauled by a kitten, um, but it's important to get that scrutiny here first before we say something publicly, and then you get other people whose claws maybe are a bit longer. I'm trying to get into you after that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you've developed quite a thick skin. This is really important. You've got to not identify with your research. You know, you've got to open up to criticism. You know, the more criticism you get, the better job you can do next time. But if every time somebody criticizes something you've done, you feel personal hurt, you're going to, you're going to become defensive and you're not going to be able to hear what they have to say and you're not going to get better. So always we're on a journey to improve what it is, to recognize very subtle things that we hadn't noticed for ourselves, but that other people bring to our attention. And you can only do that if you say, go on, hit me with what you've got. I, I can take it. <laughs> so in your research, when you've tried to, uh, for the lack of a better term, disprove someone's experience within this field, um, are there any outliers that you've come across or have studied? Yeah, so I, I think the way we would say it would be to say we consider a number of alternative explanations and sometimes the preferred explanation is a conventional psychological one. So that might be the best way to explain the outcome from a particular experiment or study. So that absolutely, you know, there are a number of experiments we've done that have not been successful in the sense of confirming that something goes beyond that kind of normal conventional explanation. Uh, I guess that the classic example for me would be psychokinesis. So PK it reflects the phenomenon where people think that they can uh, bring about some kind of physical change in their environment through an act of intention alone. So in the old days, we used to talk about people like Uri Geller, who could magically bend spoons and things on TV uh, just by willing it bend, bend, bend. Um, and more recently, things like healing might be a good analogue. So many practicing healers are uh, claim to be able to change the biology or physiology of somebody just through the focused positive healing intention. Um, when we've done that kind of work in the lab, when we've looked at PK, we've not had a great deal of success. Uh, and so that doesn't seem to be that amenable to testing in our experience. Um, healers is a different category. We're just about to start a big study again in Edinburgh, actually, with colleagues, partners up there which will be a, a randomized controlled clinical trial working with healers uh, to see whether people, when they're uh, benefiting from healing, do show greater improvement than under a placebo condition when they believe that they're getting healing, but they're actually not. And that's one of the key things. There. So that helps you to control for the placebo effect. If people think they're getting a treatment, they do tend to get a little bit better anyway, even if there's no active treatment. So as long as it's past that placebo baseline, you've got some information that it could be credible. Exactly. So, so again, it's all about treating the claim seriously, but recognizing that you have to impose quite a rigid scientific framework if you're going to test right. it adequately. So let's say, for example, I'm, um, I'm a healer and a self-taught healer. What are some of the uh, tests that if I wanted to 
have you come around and we do a bunch of tests to see if I'm onto something or if I'm just making it up. What sort of processes would you take? Absolutely. So the first thing we would do, we'd explain to you that we're not testing you as a healer. We're testing the claim about healing. So you would be one of a number of participants in a study. And so this wouldn't be a validation or endorsement of you as an individual if you did really well. And it wouldn't be a refutation of you as an individual if you didn't do so well in the confines of our experiment. So, so that would be number one. And then we'd spend time getting to know your process. So how would you normally practice or function? And how can we accommodate that within a scientific design? A crucial step for us has been to work with healers who are comfortable in offering distance healing, where they don't actually have to be in the same physical space of the person they're working with. So they might need to know this person's Christian name, for example, their first name. They might need to know something about the ailment, though it turns out with our healers, they don't want to know about the ailment at all. Um, and we have to fix a particular point in time. So a Tuesday at two o'clock in the afternoon, that will be your appointment for healing. The healee, the person being healed, will be at home in a quiet space. They'll uh, open up to healing psychologically. They might play some kind of quiet uh, music, ambient music that gets them in the right kind of relaxed mode. Um, and they'll sit still for the 30 minutes or so that healing will take place. And at the end of that, they'll then record how they feel. Immediately afterwards, did they feel anything palpable during the session? And then longer term, has there been any change in their health condition? We would randomize things so that only sometimes on the Tuesdays at two o'clock, are you actually sending them healing? And on other Tuesdays, you're not. And then that allows us to see, are there tangible differences between how they feel and the consequences, the, the residue of that, after a genuine healing versus the placebo uh, events. So that's the big thing there, that, that's really important. We'd have to be uh, careful to make sure that you didn't have any normal means. And again, it's not because we suspect that you're gonna cheat if you get a chance, but we wanna rule that out as a counter explanation later. We'd have to make sure that you had no way of contacting the participants directly. So the healies would be people recruited by us they would be unknown to you in advance of the study and their involvement in the study will be managed by a couple of researchers who, again, don't have contact with the other party. So there would be no way at all for a collusion to take place where you could find out about those people and say, well, I found out I am sending you healing on this Tuesday, but not the Tuesday after. There'd be no possibility for those things. Mm. I really like that first step in particular because it desensitizes or it connects the healer and as you said before, if someone uh, feels attacked that, oh, I'm not actually a healer, then they have personal interest in it. But if you, as you said, come across as you want to yeah. take it as a whole, then I really like that. And yeah. the more you explain, the more I get the sense that there's a, a human approach to the, the method. It's not a, a robot picking boxes. Um, Absolutely. That's really important. Another key feature of that, you know, we, we work with human beings. You're, people are not data generators. They're whole rounded human beings. So, for example, when we do some of those Gansfeld studies back in the day, um, we'd, we'd be advertising in maybe newspapers. We might have a newspaper article that talks about our research. And then people would get in touch by email or whatever, by phone. And we'd set up a session. They might have tr driven an hour to get to the lab to take part in our study. So it was really important for us that we devote time to spend time with them 
you know so we'd maybe have an hour before we even go into the lab just say well tell us a little bit about yourselves how is it you came to be here tell us about your kind of history of having experiences because we're genuinely interested in those people as people and that would help us also to switch off that sense that when we move to the lab suddenly you have to perform that your job is to be psychic suddenly you know because that's not how these things work you know in the same way that you know if somebody claimed to be a funny person you don't say okay i want you to be funny right now that's the, you know you're not going to be funny right at that moment or i want you to produce a sparkling piece of creation a poem right now you claim to be poetic do it right now while all these cameras are looking at you you know and we're waiting to see the results you know it's going to mess up a, a good analogy we draw well i draw is if you go for a job interview and you know that the tiniest thing can put you off your stride at the very beginning of an interview the atmosphere when you get in the room if somebody doesn't catch your eye or they don't smile as you come into the room that can put you off for the whole of the interview and you don't quite feel like yourself through the whole process and you know that it's doomed to failure you know a lot of human performance is like that you know or, or expressions so the more we can do to let people feel relaxed and safe so that they can be naturalistic i think the better for the outcomes that we get i really like that too because you've just unlocked in my mind my skeptical side where i would take that information and think um oh well that must mean that they're not psychic because they couldn't do it on that moment but drawing a conclusion to a great artist or a musician so I, it, it connects the dots and it means that i have to be more uh, empathic to their situation as a human as a whole yeah well i i always remember i, I supervised an undergraduate dissertation once which was about negative self-talk in, in uh, golfers. The guy I worked with was a really good amateur golfer. And he was talking about the difference between, you know, you're driving off the first and it's just you on a park course. And then you're trying to do it at the British Open with uh, 500 people around you, all shouting, get in the hole. You know, you're going to be a, a quivering wreck. So absolutely, you know, the circumstances depend on, on the environment and expectation. If, you know, if you're doing, we have something called the wiggly wire task. You know, you've got this wire, you've got to move it around and not touch the wire, otherwise it buzzes. And people can be quite adept at that. But if you put 25 people around you watching while you're doing it and kind of heckling and having a go at you, yeah, you're going to fall to pieces. Absolutely. It doesn't matter how good you are if you've not been conditioned for that. For me, they're, they're interesting. I don't think they draw on much scientific um research as opposed to your combined uh, opinion of, of the matter. So the, the first one I wanted to talk about was psychedelics, uh, the, um, altered states of consciousness and how we can, how we can almost reliably uh, take from what we learn, or some people have learned from these psychedelic moments and use it credibly into their life now. I think psychedelics are really interesting. Uh, they're not new, obviously. So that there's a long history within the wisdom traditions of people using um, methods to gain kind of spiritual insights. So you see that in the great shamanic traditions across the various continents. Um, and very often they'll use some form of psychedelic. Uh, what's particularly interesting is knowing how to combine elements to produce the psychedelics in the first place. You know, producing ayahuasca that we were talking about before, it's not easy in the first place, you know, so so those things, I think, are really interesting. Um, I think there's a concern about what's called spiritual tourism, 
that people can drop in and miss out on some of the hard graft that shamans go through in order to reach a stage where they can process and benefit from the psychedelic experiences that they have. And I think there's a real danger that if people drop in too quickly without the right kind of supports, that can actually be a negative experience. But at the same time, I think if people were properly supported, I wouldn't certainly personally be averse to the idea that that could be a way for people yeah. to explore their inner world, to discover something about themselves that may be subsequently beneficial. None of us can tell other people what they should make of those experiences. But I think it is really interesting, as you say, that some people need only have one trip and it gives them all that they need uh, for them not to have to go back and do that again. They've had that touchstone. They have that sense of who they really are, of how nature really is, um, and they don't need to go back to it. Uh, and if that is beneficial to them, if that enhances their well-being, if it makes them a more connected citizen of, of the globe, really, the, you know, they support other people better, then surely that must be a good thing. Um, have you done much research? Probably not uh, academically, as opposed to just a hobby. Um, have you done much research into um, Terrace McKenna? No, no. So um, th there are people in the UK who are doing that kind of work now. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think. There, there are universities like King's College in London who seem to be monopolising some really interesting research around, you know, un understanding what psychedelics do and, and what experiences they kind of give rise to. Um, I think that's really encouraging that things are opening up a little bit and people are listening to spokespeople like David Nutt, uh, Professor David Nutt, about the potential benefits as well as the potential costs. Um, so I think that's encouraging. But of course, uh, as I said before, I think the main thing is just to deal with this in a very careful way, in a, a supported way, to build this in as a, a part of a spiritual practice rather than just a standalone thing. Absolutely. Um, I'm actually trying to get David that we're in uh, conversation now, but our schedules are a bit tied up at the moment. But um, from what you said there, your advice, I, I would take that as advice to be careful and open up to it, would be the same advice or tools that you've used in your experience with parapsychology. Is there a difference between it? I think there is. I think the kind of techniques we use, so firstly, some of them are common or garden experiences. So people dream every night anyway. And so we're just using that as a kind of fertile medium, uh, using things like the Gansfeld and similar. So we're using, we're doing some flotation work as well at the minute with flotation tanks. Um, they're, they're very much, to extend that analogy, they're very much like dipping your feet in the water. So you're on the beach and you may be going ankle deep. I think the danger with some psychedelics is you, you are very much, you know, uh, what's it called? Um, where you're kind of cliff diving and you, you don't know what you're diving into particularly, you know, or what's under the surface. So you're much deeper, much more quickly. And I think that that's where there the would be a potential concern if you haven't been through a process to get there. Absolutely. I've read online and um, one of my previous guests, uh, Mark Williams, uh, his field is meditation. And mm -hmm. in the, his answer when I asked him about psychedelics and mindfulness, it seems that someone can take a certain amount of grams of magic mushrooms and then achieve almost enlightenment as much as a, a monk over 50, 60 years. And he said a very similar point that the cliff might be a dead cutoff. So you have to take it nice and slow 
and brings in what you said, the human approach to opening up and being mindful in the situation. Um, one of the last questions I have, if we transfer forward a little bit, um, was if someone like me who has no experience in this field, uh, but a genuine curiosity, what are some steps that we could look at or books or mentors? Where could we go to learn more about parapsychology and the scientific side of it? Sure. Um, a couple of things. One I would suggest is checking out the Society for Psychical Research. So that's P-S-Y-C-H-I-C-A-L, S-P-R, Society for Psychical Research. Um, that is a scientific society that's open to the general public. And it's a real, you know, they've got a decent website. They have an encyclopedia, which has lots of kind of detailed descriptions of various stuff people might be interested in. I'm sure that would answer quite a lot of people's questions. I'd also recommend the popular writings of somebody called Rupert Sheldrake. I'm sure that name is uh, familiar to you. So he's particularly done some stuff on experiments that might change the world. So it kind of introduces people to the scientific method, the kind of things that you could do for yourself just to explore your own experiences, to test your own abilities in a safe way, you know, but one which in, in includes a little bit more of that kind of skepticism and that counter explanation. So it's a real good way to build up your critical thinking about phenomena, uh, as well as being open to the possibility that they're real at the same time. Yeah, I like that. And if there's someone out there that has experience with being a medium or uh, a psychic, where can they go to contact you or people like you that could help uh, advance this field? Yeah, so we're, we've certainly got a lot of research that's ongoing. So um, they can check us out at the University of Northampton. So if they search for us through the University of Northampton, and I'm sure you've got my details there as well. Um, so they, they can find details from me personally as well. And then we'll try and put them in touch with the, the, the right kind of next step. Well, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Today. Yeah, it's lovely to meet you. Nice chat.